Today's episode of the North Forker podcast is brought to you by Claudio's Restaurants in Greenport. Offering incredible waterfront views, music, and food, the trio of restaurants is looking better than ever after being renovated this past winter. Kicking off July with a rockin' schedule across the property, check out their website and Facebook for details like firework viewings, band schedules, including sets by Bon Journey, X Session, and Street Fighter, as well as their first ever country night coming soon. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the North Forker Podcast. I am Michalina Defont, and this week we're playing a conversation that my colleague Michael V had with the great North Fork musician Gene Casey. Listen in while they discuss songwriting, inspiration, and more, and hear some tunes that Gene played right here in our podcast studio. Uh, without any further delay, here is Michael V and Gene Casey. Last time I saw you, um, last weekend, I pulled up in the parking lot. I immediately started to help you unpack your gear. Yes. I carried in your amps and your guitar and yeah. some sort of rack of some kind, and you thanked me by commenting on how gray my beard was. <laughs> I, uh, didn't, I didn't even get you a drink, did I? <laughs> no, no. Uh, it was just, man, you look old. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? As you carry my gear in. <laughs> uh, that was thoughtless. But, you know, artists are preoccupied, you know. Yeah, well, no, I just wanted to let you know that it's, I've added it to my growing list of anxieties and things that keep me awake at night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if you see a tremble in my hand, it's not that I've had too much coffee. It's just that, like... It's the shakes. I, yeah. Well, it's that, you know, I'm coming face-to-face with my, my, <laughs> my aggressor. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, thank you for, for helping out, because uh, that's the part of the business that does get old. It's the loading in, loading out, setting up. You know, if I could just show up like a star and play, <laughs> I could do this forever. Well, I mean, you have a pretty good grasp on your, uh, you know, the other musicians. I don't know why you don't just tell them to do it. Why don't, you know, task them with doing it. And then, and then truthfully, you should just walk in wearing a cape. That's it. Yeah. yeah. It and then have somebody take it off of you. <laughs> <laughs> just a cape. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no uh, you know, there's something about very blue collar about setting up your gear which I hate because <laughs> I don't want to be blue collar. No, it's, uh, it, it keeps me grounded, Mike. Yeah, well. Um, so listen, uh, for those listening, um, in the interest of full disclosure, I've known Gene for many, many years. Um, back, what, we met at the Peloponnesian War, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, Gene's actually my dad. Desert Storm. <laughs> Yes, little Michael. <laughs> I don't. Uh, we met, uh, I think, out here. Yeah, on, I, on the North Fork. Yeah, I believe the first time I saw you live was, I think, it was a winter show at Ospreys. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it seems like something that might have happened. And we have friends in common, and so on. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, it's, and I don't know how long ago that was, but <sighs> you had less gray <laughs> in your beard, <laughs> as did I. Um, but there is one thing that I don't think, like, I honestly don't think we've ever discussed, uh, and that's how you got started, your early years. Um, mm. And uh, uh, that's something I'd, I'd like to start with. So tell me a little bit about your early years. Um, well, how early are my early years well, in terms of... Uh, what's your earliest memory of seeing live music, either in concert or on TV? What it was, is that? I saw uh, in 1966... I believe uh, they broadcast uh, the film of the Beatles at Shea Stadium, which was 1965. Okay. But a year later, it was on television. And I have an older brother and sister, and they were you know, Beatle maniacs. 
as a little boy, I was I caught that fever, and I do remember watching the Beatles on television. I, I, I vaguely remember seeing them on that Sullivan, you know, when they were actually live on Sullivan. So I, I would say the Beatles in one shape or form uh, on, t- on television. <clears throat> as far as seeing live music, uh, the parish that I grew up in, Malvern, Long Island, would have a talent show every year. And uh, my brother and his buddies had a garage band, and I I would watch them rehearse and watch them uh, compete in talent shows. So, yeah. Right on. It was really very cool. Do you remember what your first, the first record that you actually bought was? Well, now, with my own money? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Not something that was played in the house. Right, right. We're not saying, Mom, buy this. Right. My first, that it was actually my, it was 1972, and it was uh, Raspberry's first album, Go All The Way album. Oh, all right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Which annoyed my brother no end, because he hated them. But the Raspberry's were like this power pop group that took after the Beatles in many ways, and I just loved them. It was perfect for a 12-year-old boy. Look, I can't say anything. I think my first record that I bought with my own money, probably from a paper ribbon or something, was uh, Men at Work Cargo. At, and I bought that at Models in Comac. Mod- <laughs> yes, the, the record section of Models What, what compelled you? I mean, you just, you like the, <clears throat> you like Men at Work, <laughs> which kind of sounds weird. I, I don't know. I mean, it was, what, 1982, 83, something like uh, that, and it was the very start of the MTV generation and their videos were all over the place and, you know, Australia seemed like it was on another planet. So it was just something very uh, different about them. I mean... No, I like like them. I I got a chance to play on the bill with... uh, the lead singer. Yeah, Colin Hay. Yeah. Yeah. At the Talk House in Amagansett. And he played solo and he was great. He's one of those people that, I mean, he might have always been a great musician, but he's one of those people, um, a lot like um, Daryl Hall, who have just sort of over the years morphed into this completely different sort of type of musician, mm-hmm. more singer songwriter, more focused, uh, less poppy, and uh, really just developed kind of, I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me to say that they developed into their own, but they became something more in a public figure and much more serious and a lot more um, credibility so well that happens I think naturally when you when you go out as a solo as opposed to a member of a band you really have to get focused and uh, you have to address the fact that it's just you and your guitar and it, it does you, you start to re- tell more stories and, and uh, it's not just being like a rock star you have to kind of be it, you, you kind of have to harken back to the Woody Guthrie Bob Dylan mold of What's my purpose? Why am I here with with the guitar? You know, sure. So that this like you get a little introspective and reflective. I think that's just comes with the territory. Do you remember what your first professional gig was? The, pe- the first time you were paid to play? Uh, yeah, um, it was 1981 at uh, CBGB. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm pretty. Uh, I have to say, actually, right before that, I had to backtrack. The first paid gig actually was at some kind of Queens Italian supper club where I was uh, playing guitar in an Elvis Presley impersonator's band. Really? Yeah. I just, it just just dawned on me. That was before CBGB. And uh, I didn't want to be in the group because I just I didn't like the idea of an Elvis impersonator. However, I knew every single song Elvis ever did, sure. basically. 
and they heard about this, and they they really wanted me in the group, and I stuck out like a sore thumb. This is all like all these uh, you know, bouffant uh, Italian ladies and, and and mobsters. It seemed like, <laughs> and I was like this kind of long-haired Irish kid with a beard, but I could play all those songs, and uh, and I got paid, and I forget what it was, but it seemed like a lot. Did you have to wear a polyester jumpsuit? No, no, I, I I refused to get into that, but. I just happened to love the music so much, and it was really hard trying to leave that organization because, <laughs> yeah. But then soon after, 1981, I kind of joined a, a a roots rock and roll group, and we did play CBs. Talk about that for a minute, because when people see you now, you know there is a uh, there is an image that they have of you, but it wasn't always rockabilly, and it wasn't always rhythm and twang, and it wasn't roots. Um, you did play harder music back in the day. Well, yeah, I, I see. I, I think it was roots and 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 maybe not rockabilly and twang, but it was always stripped down rock and roll. Right. That is what attracted me to any kind of new wave or punk scene was that okay, it's just four people on stage, basically guitars, uh, simple songs. So even in in the punk days, new wave days, I was playing rock and roll. It, it wasn't that different in terms of uh, philosophy. It was probably not as loud. Uh, it was louder then than it is now. But uh, if it, it fit in, the, the thing about that scene was that there was quite a bit of variety. You know? Yeah. There was, you know, the new wave thing with the synthesizers and uh, that kind of stuff. But the, the punk bands were basically trying to play rock and roll if they could. Sure. You know? So yeah, I, I'm sure if you looked at some pictures, I, I, I never got punked out. I was always pretty plain and conservative. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I played rock and roll all, always. Did you ever share the stage with anybody of any note at CBs? Uh, like on the same bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's uh, you know REM, uh, uh, Richard Hell. We did a bill with. Um, and, and the guy from the Dead, uh, not the Dead Boys, Cheetah Chrome. Yeah, Cheetah Chrome. Sure, he was in the Dead. dead Bo- yeah, yeah. We, we well, uh, uh, yeah, Dead Boys. It, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that kind of thing. Cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it didn't impress me very much, Mike. I have to say, I, I wasn't, you know, I, it, I just wanted to play rock and roll. And sure. I really didn't. The punk thing didn't really appeal to me as personality-wise or politically or whatever. It was just okay, whatever. There's there are clubs here for rock and roll, and so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this. This is a nice segue into this. When you started to sort of play uh, rockabilly, um, mm-hmm. rhythm and twang and roots, more Americana, was that a conscious decision, or did that evolve naturally? Was it just something that you... This was just the music you loved, and therefore you started playing it. I always loved it. I uh, rockabilly. I first heard the Beatles do it. You know, they did like three or four Carl Perkins songs on their records, and that's how I learned. And then I learned the actual, the roots, the real people. Uh, I was, uh, if you remember um, or not, in the late seventies, there was a kind of rockabilly revival going Mm -hmm. on, and I was really happy with that because it was up my alley, and it just. It just kind of justified my love for the music and my desire to play it. It was always there. It was always lurking. It was always part of my style. It, no, so it wasn't like a, a decision of 
today I'm going to play rockabilly. Because again, I didn't jump on that bandwagon either. I didn't do the whole thing with the dressing up. I, I've always been very conservative about like, you know, what's the expression about the change of clothing and, and a job? You know? Oh. <laughs> I think that's Emerson maybe. But yeah. uh, I, I just basically developed my own kind of persona over the years, but I, I never I never really kind of jumped on a, a fashion bandwagon. I just played, the music came first. and Right. You know. Were you ever cognizant at any point that what you were doing was almost wholly unique to the scene? Uh, I never felt it was. No? Uh, I felt there were rockabilly revival bands going on. Robert Gordon was popular in the, in the Stray Cats. And I felt a lot of uh, envy and, and jealousy for them because they did it before I did it, and they were from Long Island, and, and they were huge stars. And I kind of felt, uh, they did it. Yeah, it's, it's too late now. <laughs> but uh, but well, uh, rockabilly is just part of what I do anyway. So, Well, Stray Cats notwithstanding and Brian Setzer's uh, annual Christmas show, I will say on record that you do have the best contemporary Christmas song I have heard in decades. I mean, oh, it, it yeah. really... It, and I know, you know, this is the summer season, but I... I it really, truly is, and, I, and I'm, you know, I'm not just saying that. Well, thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. It's uh, there's a, a video, as you know, on, on YouTube. <laughs> oh, there is. Yes. Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> but Was it made by a talented I, filmmaker? I don't know. It's, it's pretty shoddy work, actually. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wrote a Christmas song called Christmas Lights, and it was definitely, as you probably could tell, it was inspired by like the that. Uh, the, the Phil Spector Christmas record and sure. the Beach Boys and John Lennon's uh, Happy Christmas. Uh, that was a lot of fun to do. Uh, and, you know, for anyone who hasn't heard it, I definitely uh, recommend looking it up. There is a video on YouTube for it. Um, I cannot comment on the quality of the video. Uh, I might have had something to do with it, but that's <laughs> not here nor there. Um, Thank you. So you didn't, uh, you weren't born and you did not grow up on the North Fork, but what brought you out here? That's a long uh, journey. I, I grew well, we up, got time. I grew up in, I was born in Queens, grew up in Malvern, which is right there near Valley Stream. And, uh, and uh, I lived in Manhattan for three years. And then that's when I was kind of playing those clubs we were talking about, the Mud Club, CB's and Maxwell's. And then I, I, my sister uh, had moved out to Sag Harbor and was working for the author John Irving, mm -hmm. who lived in Sacaponic, and he was looking for someone to uh, work on the grounds of his house. And uh, I was also doing some construction work, believe it or not. But I, I moved out one uh, spring, 1988, thinking it was just for a few months. And then I ended up staying for like 20 years or so. I, uh, I was living in Sag Harbor, and that's when I started the group, the Lone Sharks. Okay. Uh, back then, uh, the drinking age, I think, was 18. No one really even took notice of DWIs back then. <laughs> it was like the Wild West. <laughs> and there were a lot of bars back then. This is, you know, the Hamptons, the, the, the glorious, beautiful Hamptons, really existed for like eight weeks a year. With afterwards, there was just nothing out there. Right, yeah. And uh, so uh, there were a lot of bars, a lot of opportunities for a band. And I, I just formed the Lone Sharks as a 
to be a bar band, to have fun playing the music I loved, which was country, blues, rockabilly, early rock and roll, and get free beer and flirt with <laughs> girls and uh, you know all that stuff. <laughs> and it just kind of, it kind of clicked. It kind of worked for us, you know. And and before you knew it, it was actually we were getting a lot of work, and you know, better paying work. And all my aspirations for original music and the New York scene kind of just died there. You know, I, I was still commuting, still trying to do something in the city. Right. But I was working quite often out, out east. Very nice. Yeah. Um, so that was, uh, like, oh, so uh, then life happens. You know, I, I got married and I uh, was working in Sag Harbor and Southampton and, uh, and hardly ever coming up to the North Fork. I mean, twice, three times a year, we would get a gig up here. And, and folks who lived on the North Fork back then will remember it was really desolate and slow, and it felt like you were going to another state to really to, to travel up here. I didn't know the area very well. And a couple times we'd play, like, The Quiet Man, which uh, is now, I think, The Grateful Deli. <laughs> And uh, the cinnamon tree, which is now American Beach or something. Uh, very few places. Uh, none of the wineries were open back then for, for music. Uh, so coming up to North Fork seemed like, well, it's like going to Ontario or something. It was far away and not worth the trip because <laughs> I remember getting running out of gas after a gig and there was no gas stations open on the North Fork whatsoever. I barely made it to Riverhead. Uh, but uh, I, I had a friend uh, who had a business in Greenport, Historic Films, my friend Joe Lauro, and he, gave, he offered me a job, a day job. And uh, as I say, life happens. You know, my first marriage ended and I, I just felt it was time to move out of Sac Harbor, which had gotten very pricey, and uh, the uh, the pace was a little more than I could comfortably handle. Uh, and so the opportunity came, and I grabbed it, and I haven't regretted it for a second. That was around 2003. That's when I moved up to the North Fork. And uh, by that point, there were a lot more places to play. The wineries had opened up, and there was a lot of music. And, you know, I would play the Hamptons as well, take the ferry, drive around. And, you know, so I was, I had spread out quite a bit by then. Well, <clears throat> that brings me to my next point. You had, you mentioned that uh, coming out here was like being in another state or another country. Yeah. I've always maintained that the North Fork, and probably to some extent the South Fork as well, but the North Fork um, is almost this wholly unique area. It's almost this, its own self-sustaining microcosm of people and ideas and, you know, even art and um, just a way of life. With that in mind, has living out here influenced you and your music or has it affected you and your music? Has it, has it, has a part of it become who you are while performing? Well, uh, I'm not sure about that. I do know that I'm much more comfortable performing and, uh, in the course of 15, 16 years, I feel much more kind of accepted in the community. I know everyone now. Uh, I, I, I feel somewhat like a local, but I, I'm certainly not. And I don't think I'd be considered that. But uh, it is my home base. I, I like the pace. 
I I like the influx of, of kind of interesting people, city people, the the, the uh, more artistic people that come out. But I really am very comfortable with the the, the long timers. Uh, as as far as it affecting my music or my songs, that's difficult to say because that's uh, you know that's I'm too close to the music to be able to tell you that. But it's I mean the, the pace and the environment have affected me personally, so of course it affects my music. Now you recently spent some time in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Have you ever considered spending more time in areas that are more directly connected to the type of music you play, like Nashville, Memphis, mm-hmm. Clarksdale, maybe Bakersfield, those areas? Well, you know, having left New York in the 80s, uh, when, when the music, the real live music scene had, was, had long since peaked, but... Uh, I guess in a way that was detrimental to leave New York City, you know, which is one of the the centers of entertainment, uh, to move out east. That was a decision I made to just try to remain a healthy and sane individual. How's, it, how's that working no, out for you? No, it was a total <laughs> failure, actually. But, uh, there have been several times in my life where I seriously considered moving to Nashville. Uh, the first time was really in the, the mid '90s, and going down there and realizing that in order to make anything happen, it would have required that kind of a commitment to, of living there. And I, there was too much going on in New York for me. My marriage and my band we were playing so much, uh, but I did seriously consider it. Perhaps I should have, but since then I've been going down there. Uh, last year I went. Uh, three times uh, planning to go back uh, and that was set up by uh, my publisher so on just to write songs and again I mean, I was down there and I was meeting a lot of people writing songs but I, I knew that I can't just go down there for a week and expect anything to happen right but maybe at this point going down there a few times a year I could I could kind of get some kind of momentum but uh, again I don't want to live there I, lo- I like living up here uh, I Nashville is really getting uh, congested and they're building it's ridiculous there's a there's a there's a construction crane on every block there's nowhere to park and the music itself the kind of commercial country music I, I don't really relate to that well yeah uh, and so I'm thinking if I could do a kind of uh, back and forth maybe I don't know but I really love my little house here and uh, I'm very comfortable I work more than I need to or uh, I have a lot of work offers and I uh, I like it up here I don't want to I don't want this to end maybe if I was a 20 year old kid I'd do it but at this point in my life I feel like uh, you know I have a nice groove going cool yeah um something probably a lot of people don't know about you, and I only know this because, you know, we've hung out and we've talked, and <clears throat> is that you are one of these people that's uh, almost an encyclopedia of arcane and obscure knowledge. You're, 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 <laughs> you're, it truly is amazing that you can just sort of whip out these weird facts that almost nobody knows about the business and wow. producers and writers and, um, performers and this guy played with that guy and, and so I, I just make it up 
nobody, oh. nobody checks. Well, look, <laughs> fair enough, because I'm going to ask you, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to share one of these stories now, something that like, you know, something that most people wouldn't know. Um, just the first thing that comes to your mind, <laughs> it, it could be, it could be a, f- a famous person, somebody you've played with, somebody that you just happen to know of. Oh, I mean, uh, I guess meeting meeting Carl Perkins, who wrote Blue Suede Shoes, for mm-hmm. those who don't know, and the Beatles recorded four of his songs. Uh, I met him at, at the Lone Star Cafe on 13th Street and 5th Avenue in um, 1979. <laughs> and uh, it was an amazing conversation where he was telling me all this like really personal stuff about his kids and, his, and talk about Roy Orbison's wife and Jerry Lee Lewis, how he had a long feud with them and that really kind of blew my mind I, I'm, I'm not sure if this is answering your question but uh it was a real a real trip to to meet this rockabilly hero of mine and have him just talk to me like a regular guy you know and uh and talk about how roy orbison's wife bullied roy <laughs> around and all this oh, stuff poor roy yeah poor roy uh. <laughs> yeah I, lo- I love the guy i hate to hear stuff like that well carl carl perkins uh he said this to me, and uh, you know, I was 19, and uh, he knew I was a real fan. It was clear. But as he was shaking my hand, he had to go play. And I told him I was a musician. And he goes, you know, son, I have a good feeling about you. I think you're going to make it. <laughs> and now, he could have said that to seven different people that night. It might right. have been a line for him. But it really hit home, and it really made me feel good. And many, many a night... When things aren't going so well at a gig or so, I think about Carl Perkins. and Well, Carl Perkins saw something in me. So, <laughs> What was it like to see him live? He was a, a really gracious, humble guy. Uh, you could even say corny. He right. was corny in a country way. Uh, he was very positive and, and very engaging with the crowd. And I actually took a lot from seeing him live because... He wasn't trying to be sexy, sexy like Elvis. He wasn't dangerous like uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. He wasn't dancing around like James Brown. Or he was just up there playing great guitar, singing his songs, and being really uh, very gracious and engaging with the crowd, and in an, an authentic way, just being himself. Yeah. And I always, you know, as a, I never really wanted to be a front man. I, I, I thought I'd be like the guitar player in a group, but. Uh, in order to feel comfortable performing in front of strangers, they, they say, just be yourself, which is, of course, very difficult to do. Like, how do you be yourself? That's uh, to be very self-conscious. But I always kind of, uh, Carl Perkins is, is kind of like the role model for that. Just just be yourself and, and be happy to be playing. He did always seem, and I I'd never had the opportunity to see him live, but uh, just in interviews and some of the live performances that I've seen on YouTube and whatever, um, he always did seem that uh, he didn't use the fact that he was Carl Perkins to mm-hmm. his advantage. He never lauded it over the audience that you're in the you know the presence of greatness of rock and roll royalty. He just seemed like a genuinely he enjoyed what he was doing. I mean, there's a lot of performers and you know a, a few of them that are still performing today that. Um, I'm not going to get into any names, but um, they seem like it's almost like a chore, and that you're, oh, yeah. you know, they're doing you this giant favor at this point. And <laughs> I don't uh, get that, Mike. I really don't. I, it, it seems like such a strange thing to me because they're they're living. I mean, 
you know, there is a romantic notion to the rock and roll lifestyle, and there is a very romantic sort of image that people have when they think of, you know, performers. They don't see the grueling schedules. They don't see, you know, any of that. But at the same time, they are getting paid to play live in front of people that do, you know, absolutely adore them. And then to sort of just treat your audience a little bit lower than you, it never... First of all, it's the first thing you recognize when you see somebody playing live. And yeah. unless it's part of your gimmick, like, say, Johnny Rotten, mm. uh, it, it doesn't translate. It just comes off as being mean. Yeah. Um, I don't understand that. I think it has something to do with insecurity and fear because uh, it can be terrifying. Sure. And and sometimes you, you, you aren't, you're not met with uh, warmth. <laughs> and sometimes people ignore you. Sometimes people really don't like what you're doing. And that can make you feel defensive. And, uh, you know, a funny thing about human nature, you know, if you go see a, a performer on a particularly slow night, I always take notice of how the performer is acting. Uh, and when it's a slow night, not a lot of people there, they're not really paying attention, the TV's on, and the people, you have those nights, you know? And, uh, it seems to be human nature is for the, for the performer to really have an attitude and, and be defensive and even hostile. And that's actually the exact opposite of how you should be because you shouldn't take out the fact that there's not a crowded room on the 11 people that are there. That doesn't make any sense. Sure. And yet it happens all the time. People are embarrassed and they get a little surly and they're, you know... Uh, so I once saw the Everly Brothers in, on a reunion tour. This is like 1986. And they were playing at Jones Beach. I, I don't know if I ever told you this story. Uh, and the Everly Brothers, you know, the great Everly Brothers had, had reunited, had put out a record, and they were touring again. Well, uh, Jones Beach Theater was less than half full. And I was shocked. And I, it just hadn't, I, the reunion had not caught on, I guess, you know, and they hadn't, you know, it hadn't been promoted, whatever. But there was a great Everly Brothers and a half-filled house. And um, they were great, you know. At one point, Phil Everly made a point saying, "Thank we thank you guys for being here. In other words, just really being happy and grateful for the crowd that was there. And that really registered with me. I was like, of course, that makes sense. You don't blame the people who are there for there not being more people. That's, but, and yet that's some kind of human nature thing. That's a great point. That's yeah. really a great point. You don't, yeah. Why yeah. would you blame the audience that's there? Right. And yet it happens. So <laughs> that, that was a great lesson for me. And, and in fact, to the point where, you know, on some slow nights, I actually really have a great time. Because the pressure is off, you know, and <laughs> I can just okay. It's not going to be a, a, a rock and people are not going to be dancing on the chandeliers, you know, but it's going. We're just going to play good music, and the people who are here are going to have a great time. Very cool. Um, I want to ask you a question, then, and I'd like to have you play a little something. Right. Um, your songs going, even going, you know, from the beginning. Um, have your original compositions have a lot of them have a great storyteller aspect to them. They're not just they're not just songs. They're not just lyrics thrown on a page. There's usually some sort of narrative that you can follow. Um, and I like that, especially recently, a lot of them 
have sort of a Dylan-esque quality to them where um, they don't necessarily have um, a happy ending. You don't, you don't feel the need to tack on, if it's a somber song or if it's a, it's a topic that doesn't require a happy ending to it, you're not, you don't feel the obligation. And songwriters do this, filmmakers do this, um, even, you know, um, all kinds of artists do this. Um, and it's refreshing when you have something in mind and you follow it through to the end. You're not um, sort of placating an audience. You're not pandering to them to try to give them a happy ending. Um, the song I've Not Forgiven You is very much like that. And it does have um, a very good, you know, it's got a great catchy melody, even though the subject matter isn't particularly a peppy thing. Um, how much of a song like that um, and how much of the songs that follow that theme are, you know, how much of them are real or based on fact and how much of them are based on fiction? Uh, that song, which I'll, I will play, uh, I wrote it really quickly. That's, that, that's just uh, significant in that uh, you, you will find songwriters who say that's the songs that are written quickly are usually pretty good. Uh, and they've tapped into some kind of subconscious mode and the song kind of writes itself. Uh, so I think that would lend itself to being kind of factual. Maybe not literally factual, but emotionally true. You know, uh, my, my songs uh, are kind of based on personal experience but when I write them I try to make them more universal so and I don't like to get too like autobiographical I, I don't I've never felt comfortable with that and I don't really like listening to songs that are obviously written about this person's relationship and that it's like you know spare me <laughs> you know <laughs> it's just write a diary or something but uh the tradition from which I spring from is uh uh, is it sprang? Sprung? It, dep it depends on what season you're okay. in. <laughs> uh, my, the sad, miserable, desolate songs, I really love them. Yeah. You know? And uh, uh, I, I find when I, when I play these songs in front of people, I realize, boy, they, this is really depressing songs. But I try to keep them buoyant and uh, upbeat. But, uh, you know, country music, like the early Willie Nelson songs, are really early. They're, they're miserable. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're like sadistically miserable and so uh, i don't go that black and that dark but uh you know there's always uh bi biographical stuff how, how could it not be when, it's, sure. when you're writing but i i do refrain from writing songs that are really specifically about a person one person one incident i, I try to get close to it and then I, again i try to make it more universal well, there are, there are artists who, um, and I'll touch on this a little bit later, but there are artists that separate themselves. They create almost a persona, and then they live through that persona while they're writing so that um, it's autobiographical, but it's not. It's, it's to this person. And you know, a lot of times they fall into that trap of not being able to separate it. But um, yeah, no, like I said, it, it really, I just like the fact that... Um, Anybody who can take these songs and make them 
catchy and make them so that the audience can respond to them, even though the subject matter is somewhat sad. Um, it's and and not back out of it at the very end, you know, not sort of tack on something or, or mm-hmm. like I said, pander to the audience, give them what they think they they want. It's truly, I mean, it really is a gift. And you're right. I mean, the original country songs, they are pretty, <laughs> pretty <Yeah>. depressing. <laughs> yeah, uh, really. Like the early Hank Williams and yeah, uh, and those guys were all like just living from week to week yeah. trying to get a song recorded and. Uh, and, and it's a whole genre of those kind of really miserable <laughs> honky tonk songs. But I love it. I, I don't know. I wallow in that kind of darkness, and I, I think it's cathartic for me. I guess you know, because well, I, I get it out in the song, so I don't have to be. <laughs> I think you know. Well, on that on that note, would you like to uh, would you like to play something? All right, sure. Let's do that yeah. song. Uh, I've not forgiven you. I've not forgiven you I must say I remember Yesterday How you laughed And how I cried I've not forgiven you I don't try I just can't let it go I hold a grudge I'm the jury, I'm the judge I find you guilty of the crime I've not forgiven you all this time I fail with anger, I fail with pain You are inside my brain If I forgive you, you'd be gone So I keep holding on I've not forgiven you Even now, you are with me Somehow you're a heartache I can't forget I've not forgiven you No, not yet my mind Though you left me far behind I am frozen standing still I've not forgiven you I never will I've not forgiven you I must say 
I remember yesterday how you laughed and how I cried. I've not forgiven you. I don't try. I just can't let it go. I hold a grudge. I'm the jury. I'm the judge. I find you guilty of the crime. I've not forgiven you all this time. I fill with anger. I fill with pain. You are here inside my brain. If I forgive you, you'd be gone. So I keep holding on. I've not forgiven you, even now. You are with me somehow. I can't forget I've not forgiven you Not yet I feel with anger I feel with pain You are here Inside my brain If I forgive you You'd be gone So I keep holding on I've not forgiven you in my mind Although you left me far behind I am frozen, standing still I've not forgiven you, never will I am frozen, standing still I've not forgiven you, I never will. Hey, all right. What a miserable guy. <laughs> I wrote that fast. I, I, I was in Manhattan, and I was walking down the street, you know, and... It's a good place to write a miserable song. Yeah, well, it was right after the 2016 election, oh. sir. So I was feeling a little uh, out of sorts, and it was Manhattan. And uh, why? I, I don't understand. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate? It was. Uh, <laughs> I think it was Veterans Day too, right? November. Uh, and uh, I. I was thinking of, of someone. I was uh, something a long, long ago relationship, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm really uh, I, that was not resolved in, in our life, and, and I'm still a little upset. I've not forgiven you, and then bang, it just kind of by the by the time I got back to where I was going, it was uh, pretty much finished. That's amazing. <laughs> talk talk a little bit about your uh, your songwriting process. It's a uh, there are some guys, like when I went down to Nashville, I mean, they, they, they show up at 10 o'clock in the morning with a cup of coffee and their notebook and their iPad, whatever, and these guys are ready to write. And uh, that was not how I ever worked, but I, I did adapt to it. But uh, my own personal way is 
is to just go with any kind of inspiration that happens. I, I don't sit down and say, I'm going to write a song today. I don't. Some people can do that. I, uh, I, I need something to spark me, whether it's a, a, a phrase someone said or I th thought about. And that seems to trigger the, uh, all the subconscious stuff. And uh, it sets up a rhythm. You know, that like, I have not forgiven you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such a simple phrase. We've all, all said it, all felt it. It's not especially poetic. But it has a rhythm to it. I have not forgiven, forgiven you. And then it starts, you know. And uh, I just go with the emotion. I just express the, the raw emotion as, as best I can. And I try to write fast because uh, you, you lose the thread. You lose the plot, sure. so to speak. I was just listening to an interview uh, not too long ago with the, one of the last interviews for Tony Joe White. Uh -huh. And um, even until the very end, he, um, his songwriting process was to grab a six-pack of cold beer, <laughs> his acoustic guitar, sit down by the river by his house, and wait for inspiration. That's how he wrote that. I mean, right until the end, that's how he was doing things. And when he was... Uh, because he, he played, as you know, I mean, he, he's played with everybody, um, Lightning Hopkins and mm -hmm. um, Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, Mark Knopfler. Um, but when he was put in a situation where, you know, he was looking to write something, it wouldn't happen. He couldn't sit down and yeah. say, I'm going to write a song. It just, and he almost refused to do it. He would yep. say, yeah, I'm not even going to try. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, I mean, I, I do think that those sparks, those those very tiny moments where that inspiration hits are absolutely where the best music comes from. Do you have anything in your repertoire where you did actually say to yourself, okay, now I'm going to write this type of song and sat down to do it? Well, yeah. Uh, like when I went to Nashville last year, and I will again, I, my publisher set me up with uh, about 12 different writers. And we would meet, and it's all about co-writing down there. It, which is something I've almost never done. Uh, it never came naturally. But you're there, and you're basically, you know, you're hoping for something to happen. And you have a few hours to work, and this is the slot in which someone's booked time. And you just, you look at each other and say, do you have any ideas? Are you working on anything? You have a title. And I, I always carry a notebook with titles. And that We'd go down the list. You know, do you like that? Oh, that's already been done. Or ah, that's not good. How about this? And uh, I have to say, I was very happy with my experience. I, we actually wrote about uh, about eight songs uh, in a, in a, like over the course of a week, which apparently is a good. That's pretty productive. I mean, it's, a, it's like having a blind date, you know. Yeah. You just, I've never met this person before, and now we're getting married. <laughs> it's like, yeah. That actually, that's that's how they get married they in do. Nashville. That's, yeah, that's, that's legal. It's, yeah. it's weird, but it's, you know, it works. You know. <laughs> uh, but that forced me out of my comfort zone uh, to write with someone and just, let's just do it. But what was good about that was that it, I, I wasn't like... Uh, chained to like when I write my songs by myself I'm, I'm very close to the song and I'm not that flexible I find with how it should go but when when you're just try yoga <laughs> 
Well, when you're working with someone else, you, you, you have to be flexible. You have to bounce ideas. You have to let certain things go. You can't, you can't be a control freak right. and be a co-writer. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say any of the songs I wrote down there were classics, but it definitely freed me up to another method. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but I don't think I've personally ever asked you. So in that regard, you've never been asked this before. Uh, <laughs> do you have a favorite song of yours? One that you're most proud of? Um, yeah. I, I, well, I, I have my, my favorites, uh, and, and they change, you know. And, and uh, sometimes I'll look back and say, boy, that was really weak. You know, <laughs> how did I ever put that out? But I... I uh, I'm very fond of uh, uh, the guitar in the rain. Very good. Which is the name of the last record I did, because uh, unlike uh, the one I, I played earlier, which was written fast, this one uh, evolved. It had it started out to be a totally different type of song, and I was filling up a whole notebook of ideas. And then eventually, what happened is it got simpler and simpler, and it got uh, more honed and more focused. And to the point where it's like a two and a, a two and a half minute song that tells the story really quickly, and uh, I'm proud of that one. Nice. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna ask you to play that in a little bit if you don't mind. Uh, not at all. Um, I'm not gonna ask you if there are any songs that you've written that you don't like because I kind of feel like that's asking a parent if they have children they don't particularly care for. Yeah, you, you, you kind of <laughs> like them all in their in one yeah. way or the other. Rock um, kids. <laughs> but. Is there a song out there that you've heard that you wish you had written? Something that you've, you're like, wow, I can't, how did that come about? How did that person come to that, to be able to write that song? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of anything in the past 50 years. <laughs> uh, I hear songs all, all the time say, oh, that was really interesting what they did. Or I never would have thought of doing that, you know. Um you know, John Lennon said, uh, "The Sam Cooke's bringing it all, uh, bring it, bring it on home to me." That was one that he wished he'd written. Um, I, I would say, uh, there's a song by Tom T. Hall called "The Homecoming," which I couldn't play for you actually, but I think is a perfect song. And it tells a story uh, about a musician, a musician's life and his family, and. I, it just it's, it reads like a, a short story, like a Hemingway story, or uh, it, it really is. Uh, every every word is perfect. Every syllable is perfect. Uh, I can't say I feel that way about most modern stuff. I, I I'm guilty of, of really being out of touch with a lot of modern stuff. But uh, yeah, there are thousands of songs I wish I'd written. <laughs> You ever drive around the North Fork playing one of your own songs out of your car? Like really loud, like blasting. Uh, if bass. it's on the radio, <laughs> if it comes on the radio, which it occasionally does, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. Sure, I'll, why I'll, not? I'll pull up at a red light and really blast it. <laughs> it, it. I tell you, Mike, there's nothing, really nothing better than hearing your, your own song on the radio. Well, you know. that, uh, that brings me to uh, probably my last question, and then I'm going to let you play a little bit. Um, I had mentioned Dylan earlier, and he, uh, I'm constantly mentioning Dylan all day long. Uh, he had said that uh, life isn't about finding yourself, and it's not about finding anything. Life is about creating yourself and creating things. Um, 
do you feel though that you have actually found yourself through music? Through uh, performing, through the work, uh, through the writing, uh, yes, I feel I, I have a sense of purpose and, and identity. I feel that playing music is an honorable pursuit. I have uh, I'm happy and grateful for a good reputation and a good following and I have I know that good music makes people feel better even the blues makes people feel better and this is what I do and uh, you know I I would like to have more uh, exposure or have my music reach more people yes but I am comfortable with what I do, and I um, I feel very fortunate and honored to be a musician, and I, I try to, uh, I, I'm trying to grow as a musician. And uh, I, I, I feel, I, I didn't consciously create this person. I, um, I've just evolved to, to this person, who I am, and yeah, I, I'm comfortable with it. Well, I will say that uh, Gene Casey is synonymous with the music. Um, they are basically one and the same. It is what you do, and I'm going to go ahead and just let you do it. All right. Well, here's a song I'm, I, I quite like. It's called Guitar in the Rain. I came home, you was gone. Said, what the hell is going on? My poor heart fell with pain. See my guitar in the rain. Well, I rang the bell and I tried the key. I thought this place belonged to me. Five long years down the drain. To see my guitar in the rain. Oh, but the wood is good and the body is fair Despite all the rain and the wear and tear Oh, what a sad, sad sight is sitting there tonight Well, I hit the road, what could I do? Worn and torn and sad and blue I hitched a ride, jumped the train I played my guitar in the rain Oh yeah. yeah Oh, but the wood is good And the strings still ring Despite all the rust and the dust and the dings Oh, what a sad, sad song it sings tonight Now if you wonder where I'm at Well, you don't have to worry about that Listen to heart for the strings Of a lonely guitar in the rain Listen hard for the strain 
have a lonely guitar in the rain. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Man. <Huh>. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I'm going to let you go. Uh, man, I've been talking to you for about an hour now. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. I hope I made some sense and it was coherent at least. Well, it's music. It doesn't can, have to make sense. You can maybe edit it together where I actually <laughs> form sentences. <laughs> yes. um, before you go, uh, tell us about some upcoming gigs. Well, uh, I'll be... Uh, uh, well... Uh, Next Wednesday, I don't know if this will be around, but I'll be playing in Southold at the Silversmiths Corner uh, uh, next Wednesday. That's the, um, geez, that's the 26th. Yeah. Uh, I'll be in Mitchell Park at the end of the summer in August. That's in Greenport, August, uh, uh, late August, the last Monday of August. Uh, just check my website. I'll, I'm all around. Quite that's uh, genecasey.com. Yes, sir. And uh, Facebook and... Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's the digital equivalent of busking, basically. Yeah. Just really. Right on. Gene, thank you very much. This has been amazing. I appreciate it. Thanks, thank Mike. You. All right, man. Have a great day. All right. So that was North Forkers Michael V and North Fork musician Gene Casey. Personally, I cannot wait to go watch Gene play this summer. He always puts on such an amazing show. Um, thanks again, Gene Casey, for making time to come in and chat with us. And also a big, huge thanks to our sponsor, Claudio's. Be sure to check out their website for their upcoming summer events. There are tons of them throughout the summer schedule, so definitely check that out. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks.